So the stage is set. Acts chapter 6 came to an end with the presiding officer of the Supreme Court saying to Stephen, did you do it? How do you plead? See, Stephen, we're told, appeared before the court. They dragged him into the presence of the Supreme Court, and apparently his face began to glow in such a way that Dr. Luke wrote, said he he had the presence of God upon him. It it looked like the face of an angel. It says this, verse 15, chapter 6, And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I told you last week, if you were here, God put his glory on him in the same way that he put it on Moses. Only one other person in history, Moses coming down Mount Sinai, Scripture says he began to glow with the glory of God. Well, Stephen's doing the exact same thing. I can't explain it. He just begins effervescing. Stephen is about to take us on a history tour, and it's going to move very, very quickly. I told you earlier it's 60 verses. Don't let that scare you away. I hope no one left because I said that. We have what will be an unfolding of the history of Israel. The question the priest asked Did you do it? It comes from chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, The high priest said, Are these things so? What things? Well, everything we talked about in chapter 6. Stephen's been talking about Jesus, and it's ticked some people off. They don't want him doing what he's been doing. He's been talking openly that Jesus is the only way to God, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And it's made some people really angry. And so they seize him, and they haul him into the Supreme Court, and they stand him before the Sanhedrin. It's a horseshoe-shaped auditorium with 70 presiding justices all seated, the highest of the highest of the land, who are there to listen to his argument. Stephen will be standing in the center of the horseshoe, there to listen specifically to the charges against him and then to respond to the charges. Now, at first glance, what you're about to look at is going to seem totally irrelevant. You'll look at it and think, why is he responding with a history tour? Well, because he recognizes there's something much, much bigger going on here than just the question, did I do it or did I not do it? Chapter 6 tells us that Stephen is full of wisdom. God said this, his spirit of wisdom is on Stephen, and Stephen knows, he knows the Supreme Court intimately well, and if they love anything, they love hearing about themselves. They are especially fiercely proud of their ancestry, and so he's going to take them on a journey through their ancestry, through their story. As the climax builds, his response becomes so powerful, even his accusers sit spellbound. Now, I'm going to encourage you to do something, even in this moment right now. Perhaps you just offer up to God and say, God, keep me from getting to a place of pride where I can't hear this this morning. And here's why I ask you to do that. Chapter 7 is very, very familiar. Matter of fact, some of you have probably studied it in school. Some of you have read through it many, many times. And you may be looking at it thinking, I know this story, Mark. Well, let me take you back to the 20-year-old version of Mark for just a minute, okay? The 20-year-old version of Mark is what you see on the screen. The 20-year-old version, yeah. Blame the hair on the 80s, okay? In my freshman year of Bible college, I stood in a registration line in which the registrar said to me, wait, I don't see on your class curriculum schedule any place that you have signed up for Old Testament survey. Now, internally, I'm thinking, I don't need that class. I know everything there is to know about the Old Testament. What are they going to teach me? 
Right, I know, 20-year-old version, right? Okay, yeah, we've all been there, some degree of pride in our life. Well, pride is kind of ugly, and so internally I'm processing, what could they possibly teach me? I know the Old Testament. But then I had this thought, oh, that's an easy four-point. I can ace that class. I'm going to do it, sure. And that's required, so I had to do it anyways. I want to tell you, the first day in that class, I realized what I don't know. I barely passed that class, even though I thought I was going to four-point it. Pride got in the way, and then I realized there's a whole lot more to learn. So maybe you just offer up to God right now. Keep me from being blinded by pride. Help me to see this with fresh new eyes this morning. We want to look at this in the way that God intended for us to look at it. So understand what's going on here. Stephen is going to begin painting this very vivid portrait for you to understand why he's making the arguments that he's made. He's been charged with four things. They've charged him with being blas- blaspheming God, with speaking against Moses, with speaking against the law, and with blaspheming the temple. Those are the four charges, so he's going to answer those four charges. One phrase you're going to see repeatedly you need to understand is the phrase, our fathers. He's speaking of the ancestors those who have gone on before them who died. He's not talking about his biological dad or their biological dad. He's talking about the fathers who have gone before them, the ancestors. Verse 2 of Acts chapter 7. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's southern Iraq if you're interested. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now, Stephen knows that he's not really the one on trial. He actually knows that what's going on here is they put God on trial because they totally are not catching catching God's activity through history. So he's going to speak to that first. He's going to address the most serious issue. He's been accused of blaspheming God. So in verse 2, you see him referring to the God of glory, meaning he understands the God of glory is over all of history. He controls everything, so he links him with Abraham. He's opening up with this line, establishing his belief in the sovereign God. Now, when he uses the term, the God of glory, understand that is the most complete description you can give of God. When Moses was on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33, he said to God, will you show me your glory? And God begins to say, I'll show you my glory. You want to see it? I am merciful. I am long-suffering. I am patient. God says, within my glory are all those attributes. So when you talk about the God of glory, it's the most comprehensive term you can use to describe him. Now, what Stephen has just done is acknowledging God's complete control. So he's going to step back to 2000 B.C., And he's going to begin talking about Abraham and how Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans. It says this in verse 4. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So God moves Abraham to Israel, the place where they are now living, which verse 4 says. Abraham's been really, really obedient to God, doing what God said he would need to do. And so God accomplishes his purposes through Abraham. But then God drops a bombshell and says, Abraham, something's going to happen to your grandbabies and those babies after them. Your descendants are going to go into slavery. Just when everything looks like it's going good, God says this, verse 6, 
But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. You can put that in the category of news you don't want to hear, right? You don't want to hear that that's going to happen to your offspring. Verse 7, And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Stephen's talking about the bondage in Egypt when they came under the boot of Pharaoh and they became his slaves. But more importantly, what he's focusing on here is Abraham is a man of total faith. Absolute faith in God's control over everything. Hear this, church. Even when you can't see it, even when you can't understand why, God's in complete control over everything, even when you can't see the answer. So Abraham arrives in a new land. He's got no property, not even a foot of ground. He doesn't have a baby, no one to inherit the ground. He's an old man. Yet God says, I've got a plan and I've got a purpose. So all he knew for sure is God's got a plan. And God can't lie, right, New Hope? It's not possible. God cannot lie. So Abraham has promises of a possession and an offering. And another promise. God's promise was they're going to go into slavery, but when they come out, they're going to get something. They're going to get the opportunity to serve me in this land, meaning in Israel. Verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, this is a different Joseph than the Joseph who's the father of Jesus. This is a Joseph who's living in antiquity in the Old Testament, not the father of Jesus, a different one. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel, everything from Reuben down to Benjamin. These individuals were the leaders of Israel. That's when he's talking about the fathers. Now, 10 of the 12 became incredibly jealous of Joseph. They became seethingly jealous of Joseph to the degree that they were willing to sell him into slavery, and they literally sold him to Egyptian slave traders, and their brother was gone. Out of their sight, they didn't see him again. Yet, we're told in verse 9, yet God was with him, and he rescued him, and God granted him favor with Pharaoh, according to verse 10. So, despite his brothers, even when you can't see God working, God's still working through history. Go with me to verse 11. Now, a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. So Joseph is living in Pharaoh's palace, and he gets to enjoy all the privileges of Pharaoh's palace, and he wants his family to join him. So Stephen's being really clear. The pride issue began all the way back with the patriarchs. The leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel were jealous, and they couldn't see God's hand in Joseph's life, so they decided to get rid of Joseph. They're dealing with pride in their life. Stephen's making it really clear. It started there. It started in the very beginning. Go with me to verse 15. 
And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Just a hint for you, when you're looking at these passages and you see a lot of capital letters, that's where he's literally quoting the Old Testament, bringing passages right out of the Old Testament into the New. So Jacob and all the fathers die in Egypt. Stephen's affirming something. God's working. God's doing what he promised. He's relocating Israel, moving Israel into Egypt. Something new is coming. Now he's going to move swiftly into the second accusation. He's already defended himself that he doesn't blaspheme God. He said he's the God of glory. Now he's going to move into the accusation that he's rejected Moses because he says in verse 17, the time of the promise is approaching. What did God promise? That they're going to go into slavery and they're going to be there for 400 years. So God's fulfilling this promise, moving Israel into Egypt and another king comes on the scene who doesn't know Joseph and he freaks out because he looks around Egypt and he sees millions of Jews who have reproduced over and over again. And they become such a threat to Egypt that the Pharaoh says, I either got to put them in subjugation or they're going to overthrow me. So he makes them his slaves. Verse 19, it was he, meaning Pharaoh, who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. So Pharaoh's committing infanticide, literally exposing babies, newborn babies, to the elements. They exposed newborn boys primarily. They didn't want them to live because they were trying to stop the reproduction. So some, they just sat outside in the weather, and they allowed them to starve to death. Others, they literally took the babies and they threw them into the Nile River, waiting for the alligators to eat them or for them to drown. But we're told Moses comes on the scene because God's preparing a deliverer. Verse 21, and after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in word and in deeds. Now, the details of Moses are really well known. He's talking to the Supreme Court of Israel. They certainly understand their history. So Stephen abbreviates greatly. But here's the accusation, that he speaks against Moses, that he blasphemes him. So he's going out of his way to celebrate Moses by saying, he was beautiful in the sight of God. This is a person who was treasured. Now watch, there's a major shift going on in the story. Moses, raised in Pharaoh's palace, the grandson of Pharaoh, educated in all the way of the Egyptians, prepared to be a deliverer. Verse 23, but when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So raised in the palace, he's never forgot his people. Moses attempts to deliver the slaves under his own power, through his own ability. He's trained as a warrior. He's been trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. He's a military leader. He thought they would get it. Verse 26, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, 
You are brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? So the prince of Egypt is scared, and the prince of Egypt runs, and he goes to a desolate country called Midian, and he moves in with the Midianites for 40 years. Verse 29, At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. So Moses encounters God for the first time at the burning bush, and he's 80 years old. 80 years in Pharaoh's, 40 years in Pharaoh's palace, 40 years with the Midianites. He's 80 years old, and now he encounters God. I, verse 32, and the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. Every single time I read that passage, this time included, every time I read it in Exodus or I read it now in the book of Acts, I am reminded of the fact that I am made holy because of God's presence in me. God says to Moses, take off your shoes, Moses. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about what you bring to the table, New Hope, is it? It's about what God does for us at the table. We come to the communion table this morning, recognize we can't save ourselves. It's completely through Jesus. Jesus saves us. Because of God's presence in us, He has made us holy. He says the exact same thing to Moses. Where you're standing is holy ground now, Moses, because I'm there. See, that burning bush was not holy 20 minutes before. God made it holy because of His presence there. So God is reminding Moses, where I'm at, things become holy. They're not holy of their own capacity. Before he moves on, God reminds him, though, I am not unaware of what's going on in your world. I am not a distant God. I'm the God of rescue, and I've got a plan. Move forward with me to verse 35. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, Stephen has just made a huge point. Moses was chosen by God, but Moses was disowned by his own people, the very one whom God sent. So, so far, the fathers, quote-unquote, have rejected Joseph, who was a forerunner of Jesus. Now they've rejected Moses, who was the deliverer just like Jesus. This is a patterned response to God's intervention. When God sends a deliverer, they reject him. Now, before Moses fades out of the scene moves past our panorama, he reminds us of something of how Moses points to Jesus. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. 1,200 years before Jesus is born, Moses is looking forward in time, saying there's one coming like me. Well, what's Moses like? He's a deliverer. 
and He cares intimately for His people. He's the forerunner saying, there's one coming who's greater than me, one who is like me. No wonder when you come to John 6.14, you find the crowd looking at Jesus and saying, that's the guy, the prophet. You can see the verse on the screen. This is of truth, the prophet, the one who was to come into the world. See, the crowd saw it. They understood Jesus is the one Moses was speaking of. Now, the charge of blasphemy against Moses is just as false as the charge of blasphemy against God. It's very subtle at first, but what Stephen has done, and it's absolutely brilliant, is he's turned the tables on the court. What he's showing is the nation is guilty of rejecting God's plans. Not Stephen, but it's very, very subtle. And what he's saying is you're doing it again. You're doing the exact same thing. Generations before, your fathers rejected God's plan. Now you're doing it. Now he's still talking about Moses in this next verse, but he's transitioning over to the next accusation, which is he's blasphemed the law. Verse 38. This is the one, speaking of Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. He's very much emphasizing there that the law is the word of God. Just like we're told in the New Testament, the word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It said that of the Old Testament as well. These are living oracles, God's own word. So God's the author of the law. He passed it to Moses through angels who mediated the law. Moses is the recipient of it. He's made a brilliant, very effective summation that he's not guilty. There's no blasphemy here, and the Sanhedrin knows it. Now everything changes, and Stephen goes on the offensive. Go with me to verse 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. Everybody take a big breath right here. You're more than halfway through, okay? You've done really good. Now we're coming into this time of accusation. Verse 41 At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon because of pride, because of arrogance. They designed gods of their own making, created idols of their own design. A calf worship, that carried over from Egypt. In Egypt, they learned to worship cobras and calves. What's the first thing they do when they're in the shadow of Mount Sinai? They create a golden calf. See, the baby nation is just being birthed. They're still in the shadow of Mount Sinai, and they're already rebelling against God. God could have destroyed them in that moment. He could have absolutely abandoned them. What we're told in verse 42, what he does is he turns away from judgment. He doesn't judge them in that moment. He delivers them up. Why? Because God remains faithful to the covenant promise 
that there would be a deliverer coming, that God would bless them and use them. So he tells them, verse 43, you're going back into slavery. You've got to learn more lessons. Now, verse 44 is the shift to the temple. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations who God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. Now, very gently, what you've just seen him do is bring in David. He's beginning to jump these 400-year leaps. Now he's into the time of David, and he's talking about the temple. But before he does that, he begins with the tabernacle, which was essentially a tent-like structure that they carried with them as they wandered around in the wilderness. Well, when they came to a permanent home in Israel, David wanted to build God a permanent house. Verse 46, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So David asked God if he could build him a temple. And God said, no, your hands are bloody, David. You've been to war so much. You've got so much blood on you. You're not going to do it. But I'll let your son do it. Solomon and Stephen barely whispers Solomon's temple. It just fleets because this courtroom knows very well the history of Solomon's temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world, which was destroyed during the Babylonian captivity. Why? Because Israel rebelled again against God's plans. So what began as an intimate, connected relationship with God has morphed down to them trying to put God in a building. This current temple where they sit for the courtroom in this trial was built by Herod. It's a secondary temple. It's not the original one. And that one itself is going to be destroyed. What they have done, church, is they replace the relationship with God with worship of the temple. So what Stephen has very effectively done is shown, I don't blaspheme God. He's the God of glory. I don't speak against Moses. He's lovely in the sight of God. I don't speak against the law. God gave the law as living oracles. And I don't speak against the temple. The temple is the place that God said Solomon could build, but it was destroyed because of your rebellion. Now at this point, if Stephen never said another word, I believe he could have walked I believe they would have let him go. They might have flogged him. But what he says next changes the scope. Because they can't argue with history, they have to agree with him. Everything he stated to this point is factually accurate. As a matter of fact, I imagine when I think of the Sanhedrin in the courtroom, I think some of them are sitting there nodding with him saying, yeah, our, our fathers were like that. They were hard-hearted. They turned their back on God. I think if not externally, certainly internally, they're nodding in agreement. But then, but then, the Holy Spirit leads Stephen to say something more. We're told according to Jesus that when we're put on trial for our faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say in the moment that we need them. This is what Jesus actually said, Luke Luke 12, 11, 
Do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, the Holy Spirit is going to cause Stephen to unload some very choice words in his next sentence. Look with me at verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now, if for 49 verses you've been wondering, what's the point of this? Where is he going with this? You're thinking probably like the courtroom. They've got to be wondering, what is he driving towards? Well, the wait is over. You are just like your daddy. Do you think he knew? Do you think he knew in that moment that he'd crossed the line? Do you think there's no going back from this point? See, the criticism he has just leveled is absolutely devastating. When he calls them stiff-necked, we can kind of relate to that in our world today. We use the term redneck, right, for people who live wild and carefree. We use the term leatherneck for somebody who's a Marine, who's tough, tough as nails. They use the term stiff neck to represent someone who is incredibly obstinate, so stiff-necked that the nose is upright in the air and the neck will not bend because it's an issue of pride. I will not bow my head because of pride. I will not submit. So he goes on to say their pride is really in their religious, ritualistic behavior. He says you're uncircumcised in your heart. You're uncircumcised in your ears. You might be circumcised externally, but you're not surrendered from God. You're no different than anyone else who's not surrendered to God. So externally, you're playing this religion game. You're making it look as though you belong to God and His focus is your focus, but you're no different than those who have zero relationship with God. You're uncircumcised in your heart. You're as unclean as the Gentiles. This is the ultimate condemnation. This skewers them. So the accusation is this. You have learned nothing. Don't you look at your fathers and see exactly what they did? You're committing it yourself. You've murdered, as he's about to say, the righteous one. And this is what gets him killed. Verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Pride's been exposed, and it's ugly. Pride will make you do things. It's been masquerading as religion in their life. They think that they presented themselves as individuals who are living righteous and true, making sacrifices at the temple, circumcised on the eighth day. But literally, God's calling them out on the carpet saying, you are living as the heathens. They've been shown for what they really are. This festering wound is underneath the Band-Aid that's just been ripped off. Stephen never gets to finish. As a matter of fact, they cut him off mid-sentence. He's building towards this climax, but they have heard all that they can bear. Go with me to the last couple of verses, verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. I don't know if you have verses in the Bible that make you sad. This is one of the verses that makes me sad. You and I are here this morning because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've heard words like these before. And you at some point decided to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. 
You recognized him as Lord and Savior, and you've made him your king. These individuals have heard the same words, and it causes them to gnash their teeth, meaning rather than being broken, they're infuriated, driven to rage over what they're hearing. So when he uses this phrase, they're cut to the quick, the word in the Greek language, diasperio, it literally means to be cut in half. So he's ripped away the veneer, and he's exposed what's in the middle underneath the veneer, and they don't like it. So verse 55 tells us something happens to Stephen. He recognizes what's going on, and he begins looking to the author and finisher of his faith. Scripture says he gazed intently into heaven. He's looking for Jesus, verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he so captivated in this moment he burst out because he can't keep it inside anymore so verse 56 and he said behold i see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of god in the bible the word behold means pay attention do you see what i'm seeing do you understand this it's said with great intensity here stephen is seeing something with incredibly sharp contrast church he's in a room of 70 Supreme Court justices who are gnashing their teeth at him. It's a howling environment. And in that moment, God who has given him the words to say has now opened his eyes and he sees the Shekinah glory even in the midst of the storm that's howling around him. And what does he see? But the presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of the Shekinah glory, standing at the right hand of God. What's he seeing? Very few people, four that I know of, have had a vision of the throne room of God. I put it in your notes this morning so that you can see it yourself and you can read it later. There's a few verses that you should pay attention to when you talk about what Stephen's seeing. Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and John in Revelation chapter 4, who sees the throne of God. You'll you'll find those verses in your notes. Read those later. But here's what's different about Stephen. He's given this high privilege to be the first one to see Jesus post-ascension in his glorified state, standing at the right hand of God, even before John wrote the book of Revelation. Now, here's the reason I point that out and put so much emphasis on that. In the New Testament, Jesus is always seen as seated at the right hand of God. We're told that in the book of Hebrews. You might remember that when we studied that a couple of years ago, or last year, I think it was, when we looked at Hebrews 10, 12. It says this, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What's that speaking of? It's speaking of the finished work of Jesus Christ meaning he completed everything that needed to be done. That's why he could say on the cross, it is finished. That's why you can come to the communion table in celebration this morning. There's nothing more that needs to be done. You're remembering what he did. You're not saving yourself by taking communion. So he sits down at the right hand of God, but Stephen sees him standing. In order to understand this, we need to link two things together. We're about to land this plane, so we're coming to the last couple verses. 
when the phrase son of man is used, understand this is an incredibly sharp dagger to the Supreme Court. They've heard this phrase before. They heard it from another criminal standing in the midst of the horseshoe who was on trial for his life. The high priest put Jesus on trial and literally stood him before the court. We're we're told this in Matthew 26, 63. The high priest speaking to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And for that, Jesus was executed. That's when they ripped their robes open and said, we won't hear this anymore. And they began screaming and covering their ears. And Jesus was executed. Stephen's vision takes Jesus' claim and throws it right back in their face again. See, Jesus declared it. Stephen's asserting it. He's there. I see. Are you not seeing this? He's there. Now, in this moment, church, you'd not say it if you weren't seeing it. You're on trial for your life. This is the court who will stone you, and it's a brutal death. So you've got to know he knows what he's seeing is absolutely real for the Sanhedrin. This is the last straw. This is what it says in verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse, meaning they lose it. They absolutely lost it. They're continuing on in the tradition of their fathers. They covered their ears. You've probably done this on the playground when you were a little kid. One of your friends are talking. You don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. Or they're screaming when they're doing it. And they begin running at him. What does that tell us? The highest court in the land throws aside all of their dignity. And the Supreme Court justices rush at this man because he's claiming Jesus is the Son of God. Stoning is a very brutal way to die. I'm not even going to go into it. You can Google it yourself later today. It is ugly. And it's a horrendous way to have your life extinguished. That's what Stephen experiences. That is what is before him. They begin going for the head. That's their aim. It says this, this explosion of rage, verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So amid the flying stones, some are missing, some are zipping past his ears, some are hitting their mark absolutely knocking him over, we see him falling to his knees. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Stephen is not just pleading for forgiveness for these people. He's praying for salvation. See, the the only way God can forgive sins is through Jesus. These people have not met Jesus yet. He's pleading for their forgiveness. God can't forgive them unless they meet Jesus. So he's praying for their salvation. You're going to want to go back and reread this passage later. Just let it sink in for now. We we just finished 60 verses. Well done. But before you reach for your car keys, hear me on this. Our God, the God of wonders, 
is moving intricately through history. And he's weaving an amazing tapestry. Like Abraham, we can't always see or understand or make sense of why things happen the way they happen. They don't always fit together in our world. And like Abraham, we have to be in the place where we trust God because God has a plan. And Scripture says he's working things together for our good according to his purposes. Right, church? So that's our God. So God allows a journey just like Stephen's to do something specific, to point to Jesus. I I need to come back to why Jesus is standing to help you bring this thing to closure. While it is absolutely devastating to see how his life ends, understand it's part of a much, much bigger picture. Yeah, sure enough, Saul is introduced, and Saul's going to go through this transformation. He's going to become Paul, but he's just a walk-on player at this moment. We see he's just standing there with a front-row seat watching this. We'll, We'll come back to that later. That's not all the bigger picture entails. The bigger picture is this. When we encounter words as wealthy as these words that we've seen today, we really need to step back and recognize that any single interpretation can't possibly exhaust the richness of what's here. I can't do it complete justice. So here's what I can do. I can tell you what jumped out at me, what this amazing striking image is that I see from this passage. We recognize that Stephen, when he's dying, says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, meaning he expects to be in the presence of God the moment he dies, right? There's no delay. The Bible doesn't teach purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. The Bible teaches that when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord, instantly in the presence of God. That's according to Scripture. So he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But this concept of Jesus standing plays into that. It's so significant from verse 56. Let me take you back to the scene of the cross. I speculate that many in here know the story of Jesus on the cross. What some may not remember is that there's a guy on his left and a guy on his right. Two thieves that are being crucified at the same time. The man on his left is hurling insults at Jesus. The guy on his right has all he can take and eventually, at some point, says to the guy on the left of Jesus, shut up! Don't you fear God? He didn't do anything to deserve this. We are getting exactly what we deserve. But Jesus didn't do anything. And in that moment, he turns to Jesus and says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Based on that... Jesus said, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. By that simple confession, one sentence, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What has he just done? The thief has recognized who Jesus is, and he's confessed him before man. He's not afraid to do that. That echoes what Jesus said, Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus welcomes a thief into heaven on the day he dies based on his confession before men. Now what we know from the New Testament is that Jesus is our advocate. If you're not familiar with that term, it means he's your lawyer. And your lawyer intercedes on your behalf in a 
courtroom. Stephen, through 60 verses, has been standing before a court of men, and he's been condemned by an earthly courtroom. Nobody's there to defend him. He's had to defend himself. In that moment, he looks to the heavenly courtroom. God is on his throne, and he sees Jesus standing. That's the posture in the Bible of a witness, of an advocate, of the one who intercedes. See, in ancient courtrooms, they didn't sit at the side of the judge on a bench. The witness stood in the center of the horseshoe. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the Supreme Court, to the ultimate advocate, where the high priest is not accusing him. The high priest is interceding for him. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, we have such a great high priest who intercedes for us. That's what you see Jesus doing. He's confessing his servant before God. So hear me on this church before you go out the door. You're going to come to times in your life, perhaps some of you even this week, when people are going to put you on trial for your faith in Jesus Christ. In that moment, God says, I'll give you the words to say through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. You don't have to worry about making your defense. Stephen, we've seen a great example of that. This guy knows the Bible. And he's pulled it all back out for these individuals. But even that didn't spare his life. And in that moment, God says, I got your back. I'll let you see my son standing at my right side who is your advocate interceding on your behalf. So whether you're the thief on the cross or you're the preacher like Stephen, God's got you if you believe in Jesus Christ. Is that not a reason to celebrate, church? It absolutely is. I'm going to ask that God would remind us of this this week as we take on these days ahead of us. Would you join me in that in prayer? Father, I pray that you would make this church bolder and bolder, and when we think we've reached the point of boldness, show us that we have further to go. For everyone who sits in this auditorium right now and who listens to these words through one of the broadcasts, I ask that you would remind us who we are in Jesus when we feel our weakest and when we're being accused. Remind us that we have a high priest who intercedes for us. Thank you for this image of Jesus standing at your right side. Father, send your church out now with your blessing for having spent time in studying your word and getting to know you better. We ask for your hand on our activities today in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.